You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Today, Andrew and I are joined by Eustace and Carol Theodore. I've known the two of them for 47 years. Eustace was the dean of the Residential Calhoun College at Yale College, where I was an undergraduate in the 1970s. Eustace went on to be the head of the Association of Yale Alumni, and in recent years has been operating as consultancy. Carol, who became a close friend while I was an undergraduate, graduated from Yale Law School and went on to a very successful corporate law practice. We've remained close friends. Today, we've invited Eustace and Carol to come on the podcast because Eustace became infected with COVID-19 in March. And uh, we wanted to hear about his and their shared experience of living through this disease. So Eustace and Carol, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you, Steve. It's always good to spend time with you. Eustace and Carol, let's start with your time before you became infected, Eustace. You're in England. Describe for us the situation there and that time and what you were doing. We uh, flew into uh, Heathrow on uh, March 3rd, and uh, we had a a terrific trip uh, set up. I mean, we were going to have what for us is an ideal trip, a week of theater in time in London, and then a week of the finest national hunt racing of the entire year, the so-called Cheltenham Festival, which this past year was March 10 to 13. Those were our targets and couldn't have been, couldn't have been a better experience. At that time, and I think everyone talks about March as, uh, as though things were really rolling at that, at that time in terms of the challenges of the virus, but in fact, experiencing it the way we did, flying in on the 3rd and being there for that week of theater, there was no thought that the theater would ever be closed. There's no thought that there was a problem with uh, 300 people, 600, 1,000 people in a theater together. There was really li- very little thought given to the challenge of the virus at that time. The Cheltenham Festival was at the 10th to the 13th, and we decamped for uh, the Cotswolds to attend that festival. And my belief is that I received the virus on the last day of the festival when there were 70,000 people, elbow to elbow, all three days before that. So, uh, tale of two cities, uh, really. Carol, what did you, when you think back to this period, there were no masks, no social distancing. Boris Johnson was in denial at that point. He hadn't reversed himself. He hadn't become sick either. He, he wasn't sick then, and he did suggest that herd immunity was the way England ought to go. Last week we were there, the television reports from the BBC increasingly talked about the spread from Wuhan to parts of Europe and potentially England. It was when Trump announced that he was going to shut down flights into the U.S., except for other than Americans. And our children who were in the U.S. were nervous about our being in England. We thought, well, we're not We don't have anything planned for the last few days. We'll come home early. So we flew back on the Saturday after the festival. 
The next day, we saw on the news how there were thousands of people waiting in crowded lines in airports trying to get through security into the U.S. We escaped all of that. By a day, really, by yeah. one day. By a day. You know, then we were in Washington taking care of business, canceling reservations. We recognized that it would probably be socially appropriate for us to self-isolate for 14 days, having been in England. And for us, our Vermont house was a better place to do that because we had more room and Vermont has many fewer people. So on the Thursday, we drove up to Vermont to Chalk Farm. How were you feeling at that time, Eustace? I was uh, feeling fine. I had started to, I think, to be a little bit more tired than I expected to be for the flight. You know, you always feel that you're going to be hit a little bit with impact of being on a long distance flight. But it was not until I was in Vermont did I feel that the fatigue was really excessive and that I didn't feel like eating anything. Carol kept preparing these great meals and she put it on the table and I just couldn't eat it. At the time we were monitoring the symptoms that we had heard about. Temperature checks, headaches, coughing. He coughed a little, but not any more than usual. We took our temperature every day. Everything seemed fine. For the first week, probably, we were back. And then he was increasingly tired and fatigued and had no appetite and didn't want to drink. But even those were not symptoms that were talked about. So COVID-19 never occurred to us. At what point did you start to become suspicious that this could be COVID-19? Not at all before he was tested positive. The day before he went into the ER, uh, he started having trouble completing sentences, expressing his thoughts. He was sleeping a lot, and I was concerned. I talked to my sons, and they said, gee, Mom, you know, he might be having a stroke. You should take him to the ER because you got to get out on that right away. I was very reluctant to go to the emergency room in a time where there's a contagious virus floating around. Hospitals are a dangerous place to be. But everybody convinced me that a head scan and blood work was what was needed. So I dragged him out of bed on a Saturday night and went to our little local ER. And describe what that local ER is like. Well, it's a sweet little hospital. It's a 25-bed hospital. The ER was totally empty. The parking lot was empty. Uh, They would not let me into the building. I explained what he needed. He went in. After about an hour, an attendant came out to try to get basic information because he was so confused he couldn't tell them anything, and they were trying to get core information. I ended up sitting in the parking lot for eight hours while they figured out what was going on and we figured out what to do. At that point, he was so confused, he had no idea where he was or why he was there. They didn't have the results of the head scan or the blood work back, but they took a chest scan and found pneumonia in both lugs, which made them suspicious about COVID-19. So they tested him. So that was the turning point. Yes, they said they wouldn't know for several days, but given the pneumonia, he really needed to be admitted. And at that point, he was unable to make any decisions. 
I said, I really don't want him in the hospital because in my head, should the worst come to pass, I didn't want him to die alone in the hospital wondering where I was. Because they thought he was coming home, they gave him fluids and nutrition and antibiotics with an IV, and that immediately brought him to a state where he could talk on the phone. So we talked on the phone for half an hour. You're in the parking lot still. I'm in the parking lot. He's in the ER. And once he understood that if he were admitted, he would not be able to see me until he came out. And once I knew he was aware of that, and once the hospital told me that I could send in his iPhone and talk to him on FaceTime, I said, okay, let him go in. That's what he thinks he ought to. Carol and Eustace, what were the medical staff telling you? What were they advising you, the doctors and nurses? They were very clear that I should uh, be admitted. And uh, I would say that they, uh, they sold that pathway forward. And I think from my perspective, that was one of the, one of the good things they did. Not, not, a, not a problem, but essentially they said very clearly, it's your decision. But uh, if you don't come into the hospital, we're very fearful that you will not survive. I remember having that conversation. And I remember, as Carol suggested, I was compass enough uh, as a result of their injecting some normal fluids into me that I was missing at the time, like water. Because I was capable of hearing Carol's concern in her voice, I knew that she and, and I don't really believe hospitals are safe places. And so it was a real conflict. I mean, here we're getting a very strong message that I probably really needed this. As it turned out, 24 hours later, that was certainly confirmed when I was admitted. And within the first 24 hours, I believe, I was intubated. And you know, from then on, I have virtually little information that I can give you. So you were in an induced coma for, what, six days? Yeah. They put him on a ventilator as soon as he had trouble breathing. They didn't give him oxygen, so far as I know. They intubated him, put him in an ambulance, and sent him down to Cheshire Medical Center, where they did have an ICU and ventilators. 25-bed hospital upgraded to 125-bed hospital and an ICU. Big step up. So, Carol, describe that period. I mean, Eustace was out of commission. I believed that I would be able to talk with him, but first I had to get his phone to him, and then he was shipped to another location, and he was on the ventilator. They explained that the tube itself is so painful that patients try to yank it out, so they sedate patients so they are, quote, more comfortable. He was on that ventilator for days. This is the time when you were seeing horror stories on the news about the percentage of people who were dying on ventilators. And that's like the first, I mean, just again, to get people to focus on where the story unfolds. It unfolds at this point to be the earliest, one of the earliest conversations about the danger of ventilators, the, the people dying on them, the percentage of people who managed to get off of the ventilator and survive. My memory is that that was, at that point, 50%, right? It was higher than that. 
yeah. Higher than that. They yeah, don't it's make close it. close to 80% of people on ventilators didn't come off alive. Um, so it was a, a very hard time for me. There was a full week that he was in the hospital when I could not see him or talk to him. I was dependent on daily calls from the doctor or the nurse with progress reports. The doctor was surprised that when they were able to pull him off the ventilator, which I thought was great progress, having heard how terrible ventilators were, that he was so foggy. And she said, we don't know whether this is a result of the medication that will wear off or whether it's encephalopathy or encephalitis. That made me really nervous because permanent brain impairment would be a very bad thing for someone whose entire life and livelihood has used his brain rather than his body. I tried to keep busy. Um, I was getting daily calls from family and friends. I was calm. There was nothing I could do about it. I tried to make alternate plans for the future, whatever that future might be. I was thrilled when I called three or four days before he was released, and they said that he was uh, sipping on ice cubes, but that he couldn't seem to know his name. I thought, well, at least there's a chance that I may bring him home in some shape. Two days uh, before he ultimately got released, he was able to get up and go to the bathroom sink with the nurse hovering over him. At that point, I had FaceTime connection with them, and I could see what they were doing. They were doing a great job. They were not overwhelmed. I kept asking how it goes. They were totally gowned up with PPE, and although he was in a double room, he was by himself, a very different situation from the New York hospitals or probably what would have happened had we stayed in Washington. At this time, a couple of days before I was ultimately released, they um, started giving me serious oxygen uh, and uh, managing oxygen for the first time in, in addition to uh, all the other treatments that had been uh, going forward. Yes, you came off the ventilator and they put you on six liters of oxygen. It wasn't until the afternoon before you ultimately came home when they dared try taking you off to see if you could make it through the night on room air. Yeah, I, guess, I think they were thinking about whether or not they needed to send me home with oxygen tanks or uh, whether or not they, they felt comfortable that I could make it through the night. And uh, I did. On the Friday, the doctor was talking about releasing him to a rehab center. And I said, no, absolutely not. I am bringing him home. There are no stairs here. I have nothing else to do. I can be a full-time caregiver. I believe he will recover better at home than in a rehab center. We both believe that was absolutely the right decision. Eustace, uh, you mentioned earlier in our conversations that you had a recurring nightmare that started in this period. Can you talk about that? I think that's a very common experience and a very traumatic one. I've uh, heard since that uh, nightmares or strange dreams are, are not uncommon. I 
think it's probably related to the amount of drugs that you're given in order to uh, get through this process. But uh, for whatever reason, my dream was that I was walking in the hallways of the uh, ICU and I found an elevator and I got in the elevator and pushed the buttons and when it, the doors opened, uh, it was a full-blown Las Vegas casino. There are all sorts of things, all the things that you remember from the your many trips to Las Vegas <laughs> were, were there for observation. But somehow I got immediately uh, dragged into a, a card game, which was a lot like what we used to play as kids called Indian Feather. You turn up one card and you hold it so that only you cannot see it. Everybody else can see it, and then you wager money. So it was a bizarre thing, except that immediately I started to lose, and then I was told that I could not leave the room until I was even. I said, I'm a patient here. I don't have any money. And they said, well, it's too bad then. You're going to have to stay and stay and stay until you come up with the money. And about that time, I get so, I guess, so frightened or so uh, worried that uh, I woke myself up or the drugs wore off and I woke up, understood that it was, maybe it wasn't real. But in the back of my mind for those days, I always thought someone would come and get me, that somehow I'd gotten away, but not permanently. And that was going to be, I was going to have to stay there forever. Thank you. Andrew, you want to jump in? How do you view the medical profession and the way that everything's been handled with your experience after this? I would say that the doctors were very caring and doing their best, the doctors that he was associated with. They were clearly not overwhelmed or overworked. Um, They were attentive on the telephone. I can't say enough good things about their efforts. I do believe that It is the practice of medicine. People are trying to figure this out, trying to figure out what is the right thing. The most frustrating and, for most people, anxiety-provoking thing is that we really do not know what the right thing is. The liberal media says one thing, the conservatives say another, and honestly, it's hard to know exactly who's right about the details. But the quality of care that Eustace received, were you surprised and impressed and grateful? I mean, what was your experience in terms of your interaction with the health system? Yeah, I would say that it's hard to fault anything that happened and much to praise. I think uh, it's always impressed me. I've been in that emergency room in the local hospital on a couple of other occasions, obviously very minor occasions. And every one of my interactions, they have performed above and beyond expectations. So my experience is a very positive one. And that's against the background, I think, in which most people expect too much, do not understand that it is the practice of medicine, that they're using the, the best knowledge that they, that they have, And that there are a whole fleet of other people who are spending their lives developing new knowledge so that the practitioners who are on the front lines have better information with which to deliver medical services. So I would say that we have 
an extremely good medical system. It saved my life. It has been nothing but praiseworthy from my perspective. Thank you. Other than the quality of care that you received, why, why else do you think you survived? Well, there are a couple of critical decisions, I think, that went the right way. Who knows what would have happened if, they, if the alternative decisions were, were made. But I think that uh, getting treatment, being in a place that went directly to recognizing that I had a serious illness and that I needed intervention of some kind uh, was an important uh, step. I think uh, psychologically, I may not have been able to interact with Carol appropriately, but I knew that uh, she was doing what needed to be done. She would do what needed to be done in order to have the best outcome for me. And uh, having that basic knowledge played itself out in a variety of ways during the, the times when I was able to understand what, what decisions were being made and what the outcome was likely to be. What are you all doing now to stay safe? Oh, we're doing the things that you're supposed to do, social distancing, washing your hands, wearing face masks. It's very annoying to do that in a place like Washington where you can't go anywhere without that. When we're in Vermont, we have 10 acres and a big house, and so we don't feel impeded at all. I would say that I have a slightly different perspective on the question that Steve asked Eustace. I think that the most important factor in his recovery is luck. I have a less sanguine view of the medical profession in hospitals than he does generally, having spent more time in them. They didn't do anything wrong, but I think no one knows what would have happened if he had come home. I think he was very lucky to get off the ventilator. I think he has been extremely lucky to have recovered from the heavy sedation they put him under. And when I brought him home, I wasn't sure that I would have anything but kind of a shell of my former husband. I am so thrilled that after two weeks, he was thinking much more clearly. And now he's functioning very well. And thanks to religious attendance to his physical therapy exercises, which we do together, he's going to come out of this stronger than he was before he got sick. So That's amazing everything news. has a silver lining. And certainly uh, one of the things that is a plus is that uh, I had between 15 and 20 pounds at a minimum to lose. I was uh, losing it and gaining it back on a regular basis. I <laughs> appear to have lost, lost 15 plus in the, uh, hospital. in the hospital and have not regained any of it. So uh, apparently the regaining button has, has been uh, <laughs> disabled. Be careful about that Vermont cooking when you go back up there. Well, exactly. <laughs> we, 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 we have been up there and I've been eating some very good Vermont cooking and some very good uh, D.C. cooking. I think we do have very different perspectives on the medical system, and uh, Carol is much more inclined, I think, to believe that all doctors should know exactly what to do and do it. I am much more, uh, as I suggested, uh, of the belief that there are all sorts of doctors and all of them are trying their very best to deliver as much as they know. 
Eustace and Carol, this has been terrific. And thank you so much for sharing such personal details about such a traumatic and sort of high risk series of things that you went through that were so personal and so dangerous. I think our listeners are going to greatly appreciate hearing your account. Just to close, maybe you could offer us sort of a final thought on what this means. I mean, is for our audience, which is watching this phenomenon, this pandemic unfold, you're the first people we've brought on this podcast who've lived with this in that immediate way. What's the bigger meaning, do you think? What message do you want to leave with our listeners? I would say enjoy each day because no one knows what the future holds. There will be a new normal. It will come sooner or later. There is no point in being anxious or worrying about what the future holds because as individuals, we have very little control over that. We can only control our own lives. Make each day precious and enjoy those around you. Eustace? Well, I would say that for my fellow victims uh, who might be listening, what you need to focus on is the reality that you are not going to be normal probably ever again. I really feel that by normal, I mean feeling and, and, and understanding and appreciating things in the same way. Everything that I now think about is placed against the outline of what those days in the hospital were like. Even though I can't remember them, I know that things happen there that make me think completely differently now than I did before. In those thoughts, those thoughts about the present, against the outline of what those hospital days were like, there emerges lots of feelings and lots of reactions that uh, I never had before and that I believe I will continue to have because they're simply ways of thinking based on what my body and my mind have gone through. Thank you. Andrew, you want to close? I just want to say, you know, thank goodness you guys are okay. And I'm so glad to have been able to talk with you today. And I hope your recovery continues as well as it's gone so far and good luck with physical therapy. And hopefully we can uh, have you back on the podcast in a few months and check in. Great talking to y'all. You too. Thank you. Take care.